Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Well, I pray to God that uh, I would have the grace to do justice to this chapter. I mean, it's a powerful chapter, incredible truth in here. But I believe there's an issue at stake here in this chapter uh, for each of us, and that is our need to acknowledge God's prerogative to run things. God's prerogative is the ex- or, or, prerogative is the exclusive right or freedom to do what others cannot. The President of the United States has the prerogative to appoint judges. Nobody else can. And great spiritual benefit comes from acknowledging and submitting to, humbly, God's prerogative to do things the way he chooses, to work through whom he chooses, and to work when he chooses. And if you accept this, if you bow down before this God and this attribute of God, if you accept this, it will bring great peace and comfort to you. On the other hand, this passage, this chapter teaches that great spiritual harms comes from uh, questioning or fighting against God's prerogative to run things. Isaiah 45.9 in the New English translation says, the one who argues with his creator is in grave danger. So if you have this inner quarrel going on with God, if nothing quite pleases you about what he does, if you find fault with everything that happens to you, that is very, a very stressful and depressing way to live, but it is also very spiritually dangerous. And probably the hardest lesson for us to learn is that God has the prerogative to do anything he chooses including things that don't make sense, that don't make any sense to us. And chapter 45 is about the prerogative of God and our need to accept that in humility and in absolute trust, to just totally abandon ourselves, yourself, to this mighty, sovereign God who run things and trust him with humility. In this chapter, the context is that God's people are in a mess. They are, seen, they are foreseen prophetically as in trouble, in exile, in, in, in Babylon. And in this chapter 45, God foretells, he predicts, he prophesies that he will raise up a Persian king to conquer Babylon and to deliver his people from captivity. And he says, his name will be Cyrus. And that's why verse 1 begins. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, this is quite shocking to the Jewish mind that God would refer to Silas, Cyrus, (laughs) Silas, my grandson, Cyrus as his anointed. The Jews were taught to be separate from Gentiles. To them, an anointed person was like a prophet or a priest or the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Yet God says, I am going to use a pagan Gentile king to deliver my people. Uh, In other words, Cyrus will be your new Moses. 
And so the Jews had to wonder, how can God use a man like this, an unbeliever, a pagan? Why not raise up a powerful man from among the Jews, like another Joshua or maybe a Samson? And they are given no explanation as to why God does this, except that God says, I have the right to do whatever I choose. I am God, and there is no other. And by calling Cyrus his anointed, anointed, God was teaching them that he was the Lord of all the earth, of all nations, of all peoples, not just Israel. God is not just sovereign over Israel. He is sovereign. He is not just sovereign over Christians. He reigns over all nations and peoples, Russia, China, Japan, Australia, United States, wherever God rules and reigns ultimately. God is also teaching them that he can use whoever he chooses to deliver his people. Warren Wiersbe said, sometimes we forget that God can use even unconverted world leaders for the good of his people and the progress of his work. People do not have to be Christians for God to raise them up or to use them for his purpose, even for his glory. The choice, the prerogative, is always his. And, and he's going to tell us, he's going to explain to, to us in this chapter how he is going to do this. See, God is always at work behind the scenes, controlling, orchestrating, managing the affairs to his appointed end and purpose. So verse 1, he says, Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. You know, like a parent takes hold of the hand of a child, God says he would take Cyrus's hand and enable him to conquer. Now, why was he going to conquer? He was going to conquer Babylon so that he could be used to set Israel free and let them go back to Jerusalem, to their homes in Israel. Many of you can, uh, when you think of this phrase, God taking hold of your hand, maybe you um, can look back on your life or your career or your spiritual journey and see how the Lord has held you by your hand the entire time. And this is saying that, that God did that for Cyrus. You know, historians credit Cyrus with being a great man, a great conqueror. But Isaiah tells us it was all because God took him by the hand. Verse, also in verse 1, I will strip kings of their armor and open doors before him. This is God speaking. Verse 2, I will go before you and level the mountains. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to make this easy for you. You are going to conquer nations because I, the Lord God, will remove the obstacles. You know, people all the time think they made it to the top or accomplished some great thing by their own power or strength or cleverness. And they just do not realize how our lives and our positions are set and ordered by the Lord. Verse 2, I will go before you. I will break down the gates of bronze. He'd already said in verse 1, I will open the doors before him. You know, when Cyrus attacked Babylon... The gates of the city were already open for him because the, the guards were all drunk. The Babylonian king, uh, Belshazzar, had thrown a great party 
in Babylon on the very night that the city would be taken. Most of the, the people of the city were also drunk, and the city fell to Cyrus without a fight. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 5. But Isaiah says, or God speaking through Isaiah, God says, I did this. I opened those gates. I made it easy for you to do this. Verse 3, I will give you the treasuries, riches stored in secret places. Cyrus and his armies took all the massive treasuries of Babylon. It's a historical fact. But why was, God, was Cyrus able to take all the massive treasuries of Babylon? Because God gave them to him. In one sense, this is the explanation for everything in life. God did it. God gave them to him. Paul said in the New Testament, what do you have that you did not receive from the Lord? And the answer is nothing. Everything that we have we receive from the Lord. He goes on, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. One reason God would do this was it so that Cyrus would learn that it was the God of Israel, the one true living God who had blessed him and strengthened him. This was not a promise that Cyrus would come to know God, and there's no evidence that Cyrus ever did come to know God, but it is a promise that he would come to know that it was God who was behind his success. And the book of Ezra reports that Cyrus, king of Israel, made a, excuse me, king of Persia, made a proclamation that said, "The Lord, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth." Verse four, he said, "God said, I will do this for the sake of my servant Jacob. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, I summon you, Cyrus." By name, in other words, these great promises, these these predictions, these prophecies to Cyrus were, and what Cyrus would accomplish or would do were for the benefit of God's people, for His people Israel. So all these great great victories over the, these massive empires um, were for the sake of little Israel, just for, in a sense, these few people in comparison to these massive empires, but God was working all these things for the sake of his people. Such irony. God orders history for the good of his people. Behind, behind all the drama of human events, through all the affliction and all the upheaval, God is planning blessing and good for his people. And that's a promise that we have too, that we know from the, Old, from the New Testament, that through all the things that happen to you, all the upheaval, all the trial, all the trauma, God is working and planning good for you. God is that totally in control of all that happens. I will summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Verse 5, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. And I love this just because it points out, God does not need someone to like him or to know him or to acknowledge him in order to use them for his purpose. I mean, that is how sovereign God is. I mean, I hope you're, you're getting, getting this picture of this, you know, amazing God who works, and he does, Cyrus doesn't even acknowledge him or know him, but he is still a tool in his hand for his purposes. He can, 
use anyone at any time to do his will. It is his prerogative to run things. Verse 6, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God acted not only so that Cyrus would, would know that he, is, uh, that he is the Lord God, he acted so that all men would know. Now this phrase, um, so that men may know that there is none besides me, I am the Lord and there is no other, that phrase is repeated approximately in some form or another, ten times at least in this chapter. Now, because of statements like this, atheists will call God egotistical. But God says, I am the Lord and there is no other, not because he is like egotistical, but because it is true and he wants people to recognize him for who he is and to stop ruining their lives by turning to other things, to other idols, to other gods. He says, I am the Lord. I alone am the Lord, and there is no other. And God says to you and to me this morning, in, in great love, I mean, it's one of the most merciful revelations that God gives to us when he says to us, I am the Lord, your God, and there is no other. Trust me with absolute total abandonment because there is no one else. Verse 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster or calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Stunning. I mean, this is an amazing statement of God's overarching rule of his creation. He can cause wars to cease, he can bring peace, or he can stir things up, he can bring judgment and wars and disaster on nations. Most ancient cultures had many gods, gods that brought, they had a certain, either a god or certain gods that brought prosperity and certain gods that brought problems or adversity. Uh, the Persians believed in a god of light and a god of darkness. But God is saying, no, that is not the way it is. That is not reality. He is saying, I am the only one in charge, and I do it all. You know, as Christians, we have to be careful that we do not think that Satan is God's equal. We do acknowledge the reality of Satan because Scripture does. We do acknowledge, acknowledge Satan's work, and we acknowledge that we are in a struggle with the evil one. Uh, Paul said at one place, Satan hindered me from coming to you. It's okay to, to say that. But he also said, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus. So he saw, he was aware of the work of Satan, but he also saw the bigger picture that always God overrules even Satan for good. God is in charge. This verse teaches along with many other scriptures that God is in charge of all things and during all things. Success and failure, good times and bad, smooth sailing and rough times, sweet times and bitter times, when your hopes are fulfilled and when you're deeply disappointed. Job understood this when he said to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? You know, when God does great, miraculous things, it's easy to believe that he is in control. When times are hard and trials are heavy, we need to believe it all the more, and especially at those times.
And yet God does all this in a way that he is not the author of sin or of evil. And I can't say any more than that about this this morning due to time. But it's just, this is just an amazing revelation of who God is and how, how totally and uniquely he alone is in charge of the affairs of life. Your life, my life. Verse 8, you, you heavens above rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Righteous, he's saying that righteousness and salvation are creations of God. Righteousness comes down from God, or it says from heaven. He causes salvation to spring up. That's how we're saved. God, God gives us a righteousness. We, we look to Jesus, and God gives us a righteousness. Righteousness flows down from God to us. It's not our creation. It's his creation. He makes it, and it flows down from God to us and causes us to be, to be born again. He gives us new life. So when someone is saved, when someone is living in righteousness, there's a, there's a sense that we can say it is because God did it. I, the Lord, have created it. We are, a, we are a creation. We are his creation, not only physically, but as newborn people, we are, uh, we are creations of God. Our, the new birth is a work of God to create it. He, the Lord, or I, the Lord, have created it. Again, just more, God is just giving us more and more statements of how he is in charge of everything. I mean, this chapter is just like uh, one unfolding revelation after another uh, to just, in a sense, blow our minds as to the unique, total, um, awesome sovereignty of God, his prerogative to run everything. Now, God, I think, anticipates that we might have some problems with him running everything. So, uh, he deals with this in verses 9 through 13. God defends his right to do whatever he wishes in whatever way he wishes. Uh, verse 9 says, Woe to him who quarrels with his, his maker. Or literally, perhaps, how terrible it will be for him who quarrels with his maker. The most dangerous, most foolish thing you can do is to sit back and find fault with how God is working in your life and in your world. Or to try to dictate to God how he must work in your life and in your world. Uh, again, this does not mean we don't pray. This does not mean we do not pray in faith. This does not mean we do not speak to the mountain. But it means in all things we must remember that God is over all. He is the potter. He is the master. He is the Lord. Verse 9. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? You know, my wife does lots of things with her hands. She makes lots of things with her hands, especially at VBS time, which we're coming up on. And she'll use new... It's some, somehow there's this miraculous property of newspaper, flour, and water that she can make these paper mache creations. She makes eagles and bears and wild boars and horses, and you'll see them if you come here for VBS. But never once 
had, has one of them spoken back to her and said, why didn't you make me bigger? Or why didn't you make me a different color or a different shape? She has the supreme right and freedom as the creator of papier-mâché creatures to make them how she chooses. Now, certainly we are not just papier-mâché. And I don't, so don't carry this story there at all. I mean, we are amazing creations made in the image of God. But... Likewise, God has the supreme right and freedom to make each of us as he pleases, to shape our lives, to shape our futures, to raise us up or to keep us in a humble position as long as he wants, for whatever purposes he wants, because he is God. And he has the prerogative to run things. Verse 10, Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought forth? Children don't or should not question their parents for having them or for what they are, whether they're a boy or a girl or have blue or brown or green eyes. You know, parents have children. Parents have the God-given right to have children. And a child coming out of the womb has no say in what they are or when they're born, or, or anything about this. In, in the same way, God is responsible for making you, and you can only accept that and bow to him. And God is telling us that, that it's just so completely out of place for us to question him or quarrel with him or have a fight with him about that. Verse 11 goes on with this. This is what, this is what the Lord says. I, the Holy One of Israel, and its maker... Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? God was saying to them, uh, in, in context, what right do you have to question me about my decision to use Cyrus as a means of your deliverance? But it applies to everything. What right do you have to, to question me? What right do you have to give me orders about the work of of my hands. I mean, our, when we see who God is, we just see how foolish it is to try to put ourselves in a position of questioning or of trying to give him orders. We don't give God orders. He, he is the one who gives the supreme orders in the universe. It is, it is our place to stand in awe of this God and what he does to realize that he, he is God and to humbly entrust ourselves to this wonderful, loving, but sovereign God. Verse 12, it is, again, this, this, just, this just keeps coming at us. And so that's why I just keep coming at us with these, with these verse after verse. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. The planet upon which we find ourselves was made by God. This life that we find ourselves living was made by God. The heavens that we see, the universe that we see, all of this came from God and was made by God. It is all his. It all belongs to him. It is his right to do with it as he will because God is God and he has the prerogative to run everything. Verse 14 they will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you and there is no other. 
And just a little bit of a sidetrack here. I mean, this is, he's saying to his people, his chosen people, Israel, he's saying that I have plans for you. I have plans for you, Israel. All the nations will someday see how special you are to me. And all the nations will someday see through you what an amazing, powerful, mighty God I am. And this is, this is a promise from the sovereign God, and he will make it happen because he's the one who's running, running the show. Verse 15, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. It is true that God works while being mostly hidden from sight. This sovereign God, who has the prerogative to do whatever he chooses, he has chosen, for whatever reason, to work while he remains mostly hidden or unseen. Cyrus, for example, is known and seen. Even secular historians know all about Cyrus. Cyrus is seen, God is not. In all of these things, he is the one at work. He is the power he is the driving force. He is the manager. He is the ruler. He is the orchestrator of all these things. And yet, God is physically unseen. And this, I mean, it's just, just an amazing revelation about God and who he is and how he works. There are no pictures of God. There are no statues of the God of Israel. He is the unseen God. Jesus said God is spirit. Paul said in one of, his, one of his outbursts of praise and worship, he says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But the, but the revelation is that God says, I do this all, but I do it mostly unseen. Verse 16, All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace, but Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. Basically just saying, if you put, if, if you put your trust in anybody or anything else other than the God who made us, the one and only God, if, if you put your trust in anything or anybody else, you're going to be let down. You're going to be ashamed, embarrassed, let down. But if you put your trust in the Lord, you will not. No one who ever puts their trust in the Lord will ever be put to shame. Those who trust in God will be saved and blessed for all eternity without shame. The God who is in control of everything guarantees that there is no shame in your future. And he can make that guarantee. Why? Because he runs everything. He runs the universe. And he will run it forever. And so he can, his promises are sure because of that. But it is not enough just to hear that God is in control or be impressed with God's right and freedom to rule over the affairs of our lives. Now in the last part of this chapter, he invites us to come to him. He invites us to seek Him, to know Him personally, to be saved. And the rest of this chapter is basically an invitation to come to God. And it begins with Israel, verse 19. Have I not said to Jacob, or, and Jacob is just another way of referring to his people. Have I not said to Jacob, uh, or I have not said to Jacob, seek me 
in vain. In other words, God has spoken to his people and he said, seek me. And when he says it is not, in, he didn't say it in vain. In other words, God didn't say, seek me, and then if you seek me, nothing will happen. He says, I didn't say seek me in vain. God invites his people to come, and it is not in vain. It is not for nothing. There is great salvation, great reward for those who seek him, which we just learned that in our, our last month's uh, memory text. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. So verse 20 says, gather together and come. So this is just like a, this great big open invitation that God gives to people. He says, hey, gather together and come. Verse 22, turn to me or look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. God, again, is not just offering salvation to one tribe or one nation or one group of people. He is extending this offer of salvation to every nation on earth, to every people, every race, every tribe, every language, every tongue. God extends his offer of salvation to all men, including those of us here in the United States. Israel needed to look to God to save them. All nations and all individuals, everybody here this morning, must look to God to save them. And so God says to us this morning through his spirit, look to me. Someone said, do not look to yourselves or others. Do not look within and be depressed or distressed. Do not look back in defeat or in regret. Look to me and be saved. I mean, there's, there's one focus upon which we are to have our eyes always, and that is upon the Lord. And we, were to, we are to keep our gaze continually upon the Lord and who he is, and what he is like and his greatness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his, just his sovereign rule, all of these things that we've talked about this morning, we are to keep our eyes. We are to look to him to save us. If you want to be saved, and I believe there may be a person, maybe more here this morning, who needs, needs salvation, who does not know this God personally, intimately, who does not have daily intimate fellowship, communion with this God through Jesus Christ. If you want to be saved, all you must do is look to God, to Christ, as we have given, been given further revelation, look to Christ to save you. You must look to God, not at yourself or to any other man, and it says you will be saved. I mean, this is, this is an assurance. You look to God and you will be saved. All our difficulties and trials, all our sorrows and pains, and all our sins are solved by looking to God. That's the only answer. I don't care what your problems are this morning, what your needs are in a sense, don't need to know. Only need to know what the answer is. Look to God and be saved. That's the only answer. When Charles Spurgeon was only 16, year old, 16 years old, he had a deeply troubled conscience over the sin in his life. He left home in a snowstorm one Sunday morning to go to church. He couldn't make it to the church because of the bad weather, the church that he planned to go to. So he went down a side street and went into a little Methodist church. Only 15 people were there. The preacher didn't even make it that morning because of the snowstorm. So a deacon 
who's not a public speaker, started the meeting, and he turned to this verse, Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. He really didn't know how to preach or teach. In less than 10 minutes, he had said all he, all he could think of to say. But then he noticed this young boy in the back, under the balcony, and something that we would consider totally improper. He addressed him and he said, Young man, you look like you're in trouble. Look unto Jesus and be saved. And based on those words, that morning, Charles Spurgeon gave his life to Christ. So he was led to faith in Christ by a man that nobody knows with just these words, look to Jesus and be saved. But this amazing God is not content only to be acknowledged by those who willingly turn to him. He is not He is not content to only be acknowledged by those who willingly accept him. There's more. Much more. And in verse 23, he says this. God says, I solemnly swear in all integrity a word that cannot be revoked. All right, well, that ought to get our attention. All right, God himself, when God himself says, I solemnly swear... In all integrity, a word that cannot be broken. We, we, I, we probably ought to know what that is that he's going to solemnly swear. And what he goes on to say is, Before me, every knee will bow. And God says, I swear that. In all integrity, this is a word that cannot be broken. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess or will swear. In other words, God will make... All people acknowledge that he is the Lord and there is no other. How can he do that? Because he runs everything. He is sovereign. He has the prerogative. Verse 24, they will say of me, in the Lord alone I have righteousness and strength, but those who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. You see, someday... Every person will either say with great joy, the Lord is my salvation and my righteousness and my strength, or with great shame and regret, they will bow before him. It will be quite a sight to see people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens bow before God and swear that he is the Lord. They spent their entire lives declaring that he is not. But someday they will bow before God and swear it. He's the Lord. God says it. Paul quoted this verse about Christ. All will bow before Christ. Every man, woman, and child will bow before Christ someday and acknowledge him either as Lord, or will acknowledge him as Lord either willingly or unwillingly. God himself will make that happen. Why? Because he is just that supreme over all people. He is just that much in charge, and that will be seen. Verse 25, last verse, but in the, but in the Lord, all the descendants, descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt. Today, Israel, by and large, still rejects Jesus as their Messiah. 
But someday that will change. As a nation, as a nation, as a whole, as a group, they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, but the Bible teaches that as a nation, as a whole, they will turn to him and be saved. So Paul said this in Romans chapter 11, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in and so, or and thus it will be that all Israel will be saved. Again, this will happen because God is sovereign, and he will see to it that it does happen. Only, only a God who is in charge of all things and all people can accomplish, can predict this and say these kind of things and assure that they will happen. Just a couple of applications for us this morning. First of all, I trust that the whole message has been an application. I mean, I trust that everything about this morning has, has expanded your view of God. But two applications I want to share with you. Number one, accept God's prerogative as a great comfort to your soul. Charles Spurgeon, in, in his devotional morning and evening, which my wife shared with me, uh, quoted, said this. He quoted Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And he says this in his devotional, If the disposal of the lot is the Lord's, whose is the arrangement of our whole life? In other words, if God controls something so seemingly arbitrary as just the casting of a lot, Whose is the arrangement of our entire life? If the simple casting of the lot is guided by him, how much more the events of our entire life, especially when we are told by our blessed Savior, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father. It would bring a holy calm over your mind, dear friend, if you were always to remember this. It would relieve your mind from anxiety, and you would better be able to walk in patience, quiet, and cheerfulness as a Christian should. In other words, there is great comfort in knowing that God is in control and that we serve and love and trust a God who is in control. And really the whole section, all these chapters that we're covering in Isaiah, really stem, I believe, from the very first words in Isaiah chapter 40, comfort my people. I mean, this message is to comfort you. I mean, it, it might kind of startle you. It might kind of blow your mind a little bit. But its ultimate aim is to, to comfort you, to bring comfort to you, that you serve a God who is this much in charge and in control. And so we need to just humbly accept his right to do what he chooses. No matter what happens, um, the, the correct posture of our heart is to be to bow before him. There's a phrase in the Old Testament that I think is, is really good and applies to us from this message. Uh, after the little boy Samuel uh, told Eli, the priest, all the tragedy that was going to befall him and all things that God had said and revealed to him, and they, they, weren't, they weren't such what we'd call positive things, Eli said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to me. 
or sorry, let, let him do what seems good to him. That's what we would like it to say. Let him do what seems good to me. But no, he said, the scripture says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So we need to bow before the Lord and say with, with kind of a reckless abandonment, you know, it's kind of like, like I say, just kind of like jumping off the high dive into the arms of God and saying, Lord, you are God. Do with me as you please. Manage my life and the universe as you please. Or it says in the psalm, cease striving, let go, relax, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and in the earth, and I think it could be added, and in your life. Just trust in him. Let go, cease striving, and God will be exalted. He will handle things. Look to him and be saved. Put your trust in this wonderful, loving, but also mighty, sovereign God. Let's pray.